0: Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is David Stutzman. He's the owner of Conspectus, so David, thank you thank you for coming on the show. Ah, oh, my pleasure, Tats. Glad to be here. I'm glad we got introduced. So it's wonderful. Absolutely. The, the power of these uh, networks uh, even on Zoom, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, you've been doing this for uh, a long time. I can feel the passion. You know, was this always the plan for you? Oh, uh,
1: absolutely not. You know, I got into the industry maybe by fate. I had uh, actually a high school teacher that said you should be an architect. Like, okay, hadn't thought about that, but <laughs> I give that a whirl, and uh, yeah, applied to architecture school, got in, and uh, the rest I don't know if you say it's history, but not exactly. You know, so I never really was a designer like most architects seem to want to aspire to, but I got hooked on the technical side, on production and on specifications and the very first project I did out of school, I thought I was done with the entire project. Project manager looks at me and says, now it's time to write the spec. (laughs) I literally looked at him and said, what's a spec? We never talked about this in school. I have no idea what you're talking about. And that launched the career. That was 1975, 76. That was a long time ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what do you think your teacher sawing you that said architect, like did he have a background or he or she have a background in architecture or what sort of prompted that you think?
1: Teacher was actually in a, um, call it a drafting class. You know, it was one of those things where, I don't know, he would give assignments and I would finish them well before everybody else. It was one of the, I think I just had the ability to pick up on the 3D aspect, you know, be able to see things in 3D that we're drawing in 2D or be able to translate between the two.
0: And it worked out well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When you were sort of starting up, you said, you know, what's a spec? What was your early experiences? Like, was it easy to get up on the curve? Because there's there's a lot of information involved in creating a spec.
1: Definitely not easy. Definitely not easy. I didn't know a lot of, I didn't know most stuff. You know, we're looking at the at the spec and it's, um, you see reference standards, you see references to materials, to products. I spent a lot of time looking this stuff up because I didn't know, you know, so what does all of this stuff mean? And, you know, we're working from, at that time, the first one, working from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers master specifications, so going back all those years, it was first draft was physically take a red pencil and mark out what doesn't belong. That's what we had to submit. No computers at that point. So being able to understand what they had in the spec and what it actually meant was, I mean, it's important because the words are important, part of the contract documents. And if we don't get it right, we're not helping the contractor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you started, which was, I'm just looking at your profile in the say like mid to late 80s. Is that correct? Uh, mid 70s. Mid 70s. Okay. Yes. So, to, to now, I like was what? years on you. Look at the gray hair. Yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just saw your LinkedIn profile ended there. So, yeah. So, what has evolved? What has changed in the industry?
1: What's well, changed? Virtually everything. Certainly, technology, it's, cert- it's helping us a great deal on the spec side. And that's one of the things I'm trying to leverage now. Products, systems, building science, it's all evolved. Back in the 70s, we really weren't talking about building science. We are talking about, if you remember, there was a significant oil embargo going on. So we had a lot of skyrocketing inflation in the 70s. And yeah, were we talking about energy conservation then? Absolutely. We're still talking about it, but differently today. So there, there've been a lot of evolution that I've seen in my career, you know, and I'm just, I'm happy to be part of it because I think we're still making good progress. Although I'd love to see even more progress.
0: Absolutely. And, and I was told that you were, you're were involved in some of that change. What, what were you, uh, what did you propose? What were you a part of that sort of helped sort of change some of that industry?
1: Well, because we're writing specifications, It got to a point where I've been involved in several of the different formats that are used for producing specifications. I've been heavily involved in Construction Specifications Institute, CSI, participated on a lot of their committees. Two of them were the Master Format Committee and the other was the Uniformat Committee. I actually chaired the Uniformat Committee once upon a time. And... We're looking at it, so the industry grew up with master format, if you go back far enough. So started 16 divisions, five-digit section numbers. Today, we have 50 divisions and six-digit section numbers. And when folks think of the CSI format, that's one of the very first things that they think of. But uniformat is, say, a different way of looking at the same building it's almost like you have two filters so you have master format and you see products essentially you have uniformat as a separate filter and you see systems and assemblies and the uniformat what i had struggled with was uniformat was introduced in the early 90s i looked at it and say systems and assemblies this is a great way to be able to describe buildings very early before you know what the design solution is. But it never really took off well. CSI has a version, ASTM has a version, GSA has a version, and it was originally developed by estimators for GSA as a way to be able to estimate projects early before you knew what the design solution was. It worked still works. It hasn't been well promoted. The estimators love it. Many of the architects don't know it exists. So what we ended up doing, because of when we get to the end of projects or into the each design phase today, we're often looking at value engineering. So they finally do an estimate, they end end schematic design, they do the estimate, they discover the building is over budget. Now. Everybody pauses. You go back and essentially do a redesign to get the building back in budget. This happens not once, not twice, sometimes three or four times in a project's life cycle during design. It's a colossal waste of time, right? It delays the owner's delivery of the project. The design team gets frustrated because they have to keep redoing things. The costs, by the time you finally start defining the design well, The cost keeps going up. It never comes down. And essentially, you're taking quality out of the project or you're taking program out of the project to be able to reduce the cost, to be able to get this thing under control to go out for bid and construction. I got tired of it. I'm trying to eradicate value engineering because what I want to do is go back to the beginning of design and let's say, let's stop doing things the same way we've always done. Let's leverage a tool that's there, Uniformat. Let's describe the building in words. I can describe systems in a sentence that an estimator can price, right? The design team doesn't have to draw anything. Give me a basic geometry. Give me a basic volume. And a good conceptual estimator can get us a price. And now we can do cost analysis, system to system, option to option. So we might want to look at two different exterior wall assemblies. Great. I can describe both of them. Takes me half an hour to write these things. The estimator can price both. Look at the performance. Look at the durability. Look at the cost. The ultimate solution may not be the least expensive. But now the design team can choose before they even design and now we have a description say okay here's the description go draw this what
0: do it once yeah this makes a lot of sense so is habit the only resistance or i mean is there a, some stakeholder in the process that doesn't want this change to occur
1: i don't know that anyone is totally resistant to this kind of an idea i think it's just new you know it's and yet the tools are not new The idea is really not new. It's a matter of how are you applying the tools to the same processes that we've been using for years? Mm. And can you rethink about the process in a different light? Yeah, That's where we're trying to push the industry.
0: Yeah. So what sort of things are you doing to sort of promote this?
1: Well, we took it on ourselves at Conspectus that we actually developed a specification writing Cloud based tool, calling it Conspectus Cloud. Yes, not terribly <laughs> ingenious in the name, but Conspectus Cloud, where we took Uniformat, we took Master Format, and we put them together. So now we can write descriptions based in a Uniformat assembly, and we can connect the Uniformat description directly to Master Format. So we eliminate some of these informational gaps that always occur when you move from one design phase to the next. So we're carrying the information over, becomes a roadmap for completing the master format specs. But the real revelation may be, do we even need master format based specs? Mm. We're working on a project today where we've been contracted directly by the design builder. The design builder told the design team, the architect in particular, you're not writing the spec, inspectus is. And they're contracted directly to us.
0: Yeah. So you're saying the master specs are not even necessary. May not be. May not. So you put a question mark there. So let's say, you know, play the other side for a second. If someone were to resist that or pose that, what sort of arguments would they try to put together to say they do need a master spec?
1: The only one that they probably will—we've always done it this way, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's. I
0: hate that it's,
1: one. Re, yeah, resistance to change because they have their own master documents that they want to use, and the master documents are built on tradition. It's master format based construction documents, and since that's what they have, why not use those? Because now I don't have to think about doing something differently. That's part of the challenge because I mentioned we're working with the design builder. When the design builder controls the design team, is it really necessary to deliver the same kinds of documents that you would use, whether if it were a construction manager at risk or if it was a design build design bid build delivery method? I think the answer is no, because you're part of the construction team. You shouldn't need to impose the same kinds of restrictions on yourself, in essence, that you might on a contractor that's in a design bid-build delivery method.
0: Yeah. So you've also, you know, you've been involved in the specifications. You've also been, you know, building businesses, right? You've been building your own firm. How does that work? Because that's a different skill set, right? You're, you're doing the specification work, you're building a business. Um, did that side, you know, come naturally? Because you could have always stayed working for someone else. Like, what, why did you decide to go up and out?
1: Ah, and that's an easy answer, too. It was early 90s, 1992. And I was working for a large engineering company, had a small architectural component. And a group of us were shipped off to A client's location to develop a new pharmaceutical campus. So we were doing some of the very early design programming. When we got there, again, it was 92, we're looking at each other and saying, Will we have a job when we get back? Because that wasn't a pleasant time in this industry. Yeah. Will we even get a chance to go back? (laughs) So looking at that that possibility, we looked at each other and said, well, let's just start our own business because we were all basically specifiers, which is what we did. So it's 92. When I started it, I thought, you know, I'm in New Jersey. I might have two or three people with me and serve generally the Philadelphia area. Today, we're at 15 people. We're serving design teams across the country, projects across the country and some international work and today i'm looking at it and saying do i have enough staff even for the workload that i have i don't think i do we're actively looking to hire so it's growing it's grown i'll say dramatically it didn't grow much in the first say 10 years but we've we've grown significantly
0: was just the 10 years to build the trust or did you start to change your approach like what what helped you kind of you know get to that next level
1: well i think the the change happened when we started to develop more clients more repeat clients where the th- at that time the two of us there were only two remaining of the original that were remaining at that time so we couldn't do it ourselves you know because we were trying to do the work we were trying to do the sales we were trying to manage the business and said you know we can't do all three and if we want to grow at all we're going to have to look to be hiring. So that's what led to the first growth, I guess. Our our very first employee, was he a, an experienced specifier? No, I hired a roofer. <laughs> that's a, a great roofer. And first day of the job, I had to show him how to turn the computer on. And he had almost no computer skills. He had no specifying skills, but he knew what was going on on a job site. So he could relate to what we're trying to do, you know, and that's where it started. you know today, like I said, we have fifteen, and we have a variety of folks, some coming out of construction, some are architects, some are experienced specifiers, others are not,
0: yeah, so I'm curious, like when you hired this individual, did you hire for attitude like how how did you sort of select this individual that had no experience? and that couldn't turn on a computer, and um, you're willing to sort of, you know, help and, and grow.
1: I This was a personal connection. His son, my son, played on the same soccer team. Yes, yeah, so we had, we had um, years of exposure to each other, and uh, so it was maybe a, a leap of faith on my part only because I knew him and thought that he would at least have the right attitude coming in
0: and it worked out. It worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, were there any specific uh, growing a business and managing a business is different than the specification side. So, I mean, what sort of skills or areas did you have to develop as you were sort of learning?
1: Oh gosh. Well, I'd never managed a business before, but the biggest I think help for myself was that I grew up with my father, who actually managed a department store. You know, so you're exposed. You don't necessarily know all of what he's talking about, but you hear things, right? And it assimilates a little bit. So that was a big. That was actually a big help because I could relate to the the stories that I would have heard growing up, as to the kinds of things that I'm dealing with now, as trying to run the business. And I would actually talk to him too. I'd ask him for some advice, you know, and it was, he was always willing to give the advice whenever I asked. So it was a big help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of some of the trends and some of the things that you encounter, what are the most interesting to you as you sort of move in in the architecture space or the construction space?
1: Ah, trends. I I think one of the biggest trends that I see is that currently, I think the design teams are struggling because they're overwhelmed with work. I think what we're seeing is maybe a bit of a decline in the documentation quality that's coming out of design teams. And at that point, I I tip my hat to the contractors and say, you know, you're doing a great job because you're taking things that might be less than complete. You're being able to turn them into reality and still meet the design intent along the way. So what I'm hoping that we can do is with that, with the trend that's happening currently is that we can reverse that. I think we need to identify better what the contractors actually need. And the way that we're going to do this is design teams have to talk to them. You know, the owners might have to get involved in the mix too, and let's start delivering the documents that the contractors actually find useful.
0: Mm. What are some examples of you know, where those collaborations or conversations have like you know, let its feedback that was later sort of incorporated? What, what were the tips or things that people need on the construction side?
1: Well, I think what we're seeing in it, and it's part of it, is going through Conspectus Cloud. We're inviting contractors to participate early. You know, why wait until you're handed the documents say, okay, go bid it and build it? No, let's get involved in the process. Let's contribute to the specification discussion. You know, maybe they know something about market conditions that the architects and the owners don't. Maybe they know what materials might not be available so that they can actually inform us, let us make changes before we go out to bid, before it turns into a Request for information or before it turns into a change order,
0: yeah, and hey, you mentioned uh, marking conditions what what was that related to like well just general
1: general availability of materials I mean today i mean you you hear in the news all the supply chain issues just had a call about one yesterday it's It's a minor little thing it's this little metal clip that actually makes a UL design for a fire rated floor ceiling assembly and acoustics for that assembly work. It's not available. So now what? The construction's underway. They're trying to buy it and they can't get it. The electrical rough in, all of the rough in is done and it allowed for that the thickness of that clip in the ceiling. So now all the rough in fixtures are too low we can't fasten directly to the framing so now it's a bit of a mess and this is a fire rated assembly so now there has to be an engineering judgment because now it's not matching the assembly
0: anymore what do you do Mm. right so the engineering firm will come in and see if there's any alternative or some safe you know (laughs) yeah exactly
1: all for this little metal clip
0: But I guess what you're saying is if there was some visibility into, you know, conditions that may have affected that, then maybe moving away from that type of uh, system, you know, was possible.
1: Yeah, we could have picked a different floor ceiling assembly, right? Had we known, didn't know, came out later
0: you must encounter tons of information, right? There's new products, new materials coming out all the time. How do you think about all that? Like, where do you get your information? How do you judge if something is you know, worth trying?
1: We spend a lot of time talking to manufacturer representatives. We try to build those relationships so that when we have questions that we can pick up the phone and call and talk to them. It's a matter of trying to find the ones that you can actually trust that you know, that you try to build a personal relationship with so that there is an honest sharing of information because we have some manufacturers representatives will call and will ask about a product and they're refreshingly truthful to say, don't use our product, it's not appropriate. Oh, and by the way, here's the product from another manufacturer that you should probably consider. Yeah,
0: that's solid.
1: Oh, it absolutely is, and because we can't know everything, and hopefully we know the right people to call to get the help.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, just to give me a sense, how many do you think you know, individuals, numbers wise, you have that's like pick up the phone and ask, you know, for for someone in your situation, a dozen, two dozen, or a small handful? I think
1: it's well more than that because we think about all of the different building products that go into a project. They're not all at that level, but I I would guess that we probably have in the range of 50, 50, 50 personally, that I would wouldn't think twice about calling to get help.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good number for sure. And I I guess, you know, with any firm, you know, to being being a resource to their client, have these similar things where they have these trusted networks of, let's say, 50 around 50, slightly less, slightly more that they can call.
1: Yeah. And the network is, you know, far larger than that. But those are the ones I would probably always
0: start with. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that's that's very good for you when, when you're not you know, working in your business or trying to move the industry forward. What what sort of other things are you interested in?
1: I spend a lot of time working. So, <laughs> but the other the other things, gardening. We actually this year we had our own conspectus garden right out my window here. So we managed that for the summer. I do like boating, Well, actually fishing, boating, pretending to fish because I rarely catch anything. <laughs> pretending to fish. <laughs> I catch things like rocks. Literally, I've hooked a rock. Really? Know? Yes. <laughs> I, catch, I catch half of a flounder, the front half of the flounder. Oh, no. Yes. So I'm still trying to perfect that. You know, I, I grew up on the Great Lakes. I still can't figure out saltwater fishing in New Jersey. Maybe eventually by the time I retire, I'll have it figured out and I'll do far better. Very nice.
0: Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share?
1: I don't know. I thought we did well in covering a good deal. But I think that the only thing maybe as a parting kind of a comment, I'd like the industry to just think about how we can do better. How we can share information better. How we can turn processes into transparent processes where everyone can participate because I think right now where we have these uh, silos that happen all the time, and when the information can't be easily shared, we end up with these disconnects that happen that cause project delays, they cause change orders, they cause overruns in the project. So I think we need to find a better way, you know, to make this transparent. And I think I think it can be done. I just think we have to stop and rethink about the processes we're using.
0: Yeah, it's a great message. Well, David, thanks thanks for what you do for the industry. And thanks for sharing your uh, story.
1: My pleasure. And hopefully we can uh, get together again. Absolutely. All right. You take care then. Thanks for having me, Tats. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes.